think that's recorded now, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, look, only you can tell because you're doing it. Oh, really? Oh, no, it, it tells me you're recording or live. My bad. All right, cool. So that's good. We got off with, uh, with a lie at the start. Get all the lies out of the way. Uh, okay, hi, guys. Uh, my name is Iraj. Uh, you might be familiar with me as a Starbuck on most social media, uh, mostly active on Instagram. And today I have Comrade Lima with me. Uh, together, you know, we form part of uh, the admin uh, for the Hulk Collective. And we're going to be talking a little bit about identity. Uh, we're hoping that this will be part of an extended series that we will um, tackle a few different issues um, from mostly a Marxist-Leninist, anti-imperialist perspective. Um, so yeah, hope you guys enjoy this and I'll pass on to Lima. Yeah, hi everyone. That was a really good introduction, Iraj. And really looking forward to kicking this off. I know there have been some topics that we wanted to delve more in depth about, but we thought it'd be better to discuss it organically as opposed to posts, or make creating posts about it. So um, really hope to have a variety of perspectives on here in the future and see how this goes. For sure, exactly. Um, so I guess um, in terms of uh, just kicking things off uh, with today's uh, episode, um, identity, um, I, I guess I kind of want to um, get your perspectives on things and mostly let you do the talking and carry this episode as we discussed. Um, Classic. <laughs> uh, so... I guess to start off with, um, to you, uh, what does the word identity mean? Yeah, that's not, it's not an easy question for me. And I don't think I have the answer uh, for it still, despite really thinking about it, um, both consciously and subconsciously for years, years, ever since, ever since being a first generation immigrant, really. Um, it brings a lot of emotions with it, no answers, but super complicated emotions that are hard to sift through. But if I were to provide or like try to give an answer, it'd be like an intersection of myriad of things where at, at the crux of it is culture um, and language, but at the same time, trying to preserve that as a first generation immigrant in the West, um, and, and sometimes perhaps even like overcompensating <laughs> in those efforts. So it's, it's complicated. Like it, it's so different for so many people, particularly first and generation immigrants, um, where I think for others, it can be a variety of things, more of an intersection between where they are right now and their roots. But for me, it's like really clinging on <laughs> to something that I, I didn't really have um, where I, like I've had exposure and I continue to, but didn't really have that firsthand experience and in many ways and still trying to find that. So for me, it's it's like one of the most important things uh, as part of me, but also something that I'm wary about, particularly when it comes to my politics and, and really have to be careful about um, when, when doing analyses and looking at geopolitical um, 
geopolitical instances, particularly in relation to our homelands, uh, because it can be so easily co uh, like co-opted and usurped. So yeah, it's complicated for myself. And I think it's very different for each person. And it looks very different for each person. Um, so taking a little bit of a step back, um, just kind of giving us an overview of um, like a brief overview of um, how your identity has changed because obviously, you know, you grew up in Afghanistan and then you moved from the so-called third world or the global south to the first world or the global north. Was there any moment that um, sparked a realization that you were in a different setting completely where you had to adapt your identity um or was there a, a sequence of events like how how did uh, i guess the transition affect you in terms of your personal identity yeah i mean i mean for me it was from the very onset because now i didn't solely grow up in afghanistan i, I was also an undocumented refugee in pakistan so like from the very onset onset from very formative childhood years, it was always a realization that I was different and I didn't particularly belong where I was. <laughs> and and I, I guess, because I moved here when I was nine. Um, so it, it was just more pronounced in the sense that the people I was around suddenly didn't look anything remotely like me, didn't speak anything like me, didn't really have, I didn't really have any connections. So it was very jarring, <laughs> a very jarring reality to be in. Um, and I think for the first little bit, maybe first three or four years, I went out of my way to try to conform as much as I could. I think it's a very, very normal like experience for a lot of first-generation immigrants to fit in to really fit in, particularly when you're so young and you're a child um but the realization was very stark and it's never gone away it's just I embrace it now and I have for a long time and I'm very lucky that I you know didn't spend too much too much time suffering or being in pain in that regard it's a very painful experience and I've seen it around me to always be in that state of mind to to try to belong and 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 every and every sense of the world, every sense of the word, I've never felt like I have belonged here. And then it goes, it ties back into why I still cling to like roots and direct uh, dissension of where I come from, as opposed to try to find that balance. And I think it looks very different for everybody. Um, but for me, what's helped is the progression and uh, kind of evolution of my politics really helped around what I was searching for in terms of identity um, like as a Marxist-Leninist Marxist and as uh, coming from a, a country that has that, that, that history um, and the legacy of that and having close relatives impacted by that, immediate relatives, it really, there's no separation of identity in politics. It's very much uh, intertwined very, very deeply for us. I guess for me as well, it's kind of similar in terms of experience to you. Um, like uh, I grew up in Afghanistan, moved to the UK um, around a similar kind of age. Um, and for me, it's always been a case of like a dual identity kind of thing. Um, like not exactly fitting in to... Um, 
I guess, the culture or uh, like the perceived lifestyle um, uh, in the UK, but also not feeling um, as connected back home um, as I do to the UK. Um, and I, I guess growing up, it's difficult to reconcile those two things into shaping yourself as a person. Um, I think what you mentioned earlier, a language plays a big role. So obviously like the language that I used to think in was Farsi, like my mother language. And then when we came to the UK, that changed, like English took over. So now whenever I'm thinking, I'm thinking in the English language. So that definitely played a role for me um, in how like my identity developed. Um, how about yourself? Was there any uh, kind of relations in terms of language uh, for you? Yeah, well, I was just thinking as you were speaking, for me, it was like the complete opposite where I've come to the point where it's like a violent rejection of duality <laughs> for me. I'm like, nope, I'm not from here. <laughs> uh, I mean, that in part uh, has a lot to do with settler colonialism and, and like being situated on stolen lands, but also never really having that um, affinity or like a rooted connection to keep being here despite spending like the majority of my life here. It's for me, my brain has always questioned the sense like it's temporary. I'm not here of my own volition or my choice. And eventually I there will be a time where I won't be here and that will be my choice. I don't want to be here. So it's it's interesting. And I don't particularly think if it's like, I don't know the answer to this. It's the most effective way of thinking or framing or whatever it may be, is just the way like where I am right now. And and I think the language component plays into that where like I've done all I can to preserve um, my ability to speak both my native languages and, and to read, to be able to read in, in Pashto and Farsi and to be able to write in those languages. And because when, when I was growing up, I was learning four languages at once, <laughs> like speaking Pashto and Farsi at home, but also going to a Pakistani school where they taught English, it was like learning all four at once. And it was sometimes could be very confusing where I was when I was there I, I would think in Urdu and when we moved here it was the same like majority times in English and and now for the past like maybe seven years I try to catch myself and, and revert it forcibly revert it back to Farsi and Pashto um, as a methods to like preserve and, and do all I can because my fear is that you know I have my parents luckily um, and I have elders but they're not always going to be here and so I try to learn as much as I can so that I don't lose it. And that fear is super present all the time. So the way I speak, like the, the, the cadence of the words, the accents, I'm like very particular and try to pay as much attention to it as I can. But there was a time when I was younger where I was like taught, not particularly even by like white people around me or people here in the West, but people in like surrounding family, extended family where, you know, knowing English um, or speaking English as the as well as you could and having having it be your primary language was something to be proud of, to, to speak without an accent was something to treasure and somehow it made you better or somehow it would give you more opportunities. So there's a lot of like toxicity and internalized uh, colonial and imperial attitudes to work through and and it all stems from wanting to belong. It all stems from wanting to have a 
place of safety, um, a place where you can thrive and 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 yeah, it's it's often very, very sad. I don't think that the sadness never there's never a reduction of how sad things are. Um, and it's a spiral. <laughs> That's when you start to spiral <laughs> deeply. It's difficult, I think what 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 you said um about you know having that feeling of belonging um really spoke to me because um that's partly why i've like even though i came here as a kid um i've not had that sense of full belonging like you i felt that at some point in my life you know i'm going to go back like this as much as it is like my home is a temporary home like it's not the home that I feel like I belong to um and yeah then like I personally when I look to Afghanistan there is like um a connection that it's you know my home country but at the same time there isn't that same level of connection as I feel to the UK because as you said I spent you know most of my life here it is really difficult to um yeah juggle those two things and uh, add to that you know the dynamic of feeling guilt and feeling like you know i'm forgetting uh my culture my mother language and um like i'm i'm struggling to remember certain words you know like especially if you're speaking to your family members and whether it's in pashto or in farsi you're walking like an english word and they're judging you and you're like damn it <laughs> i've let everybody down <laughs> even if they're not it's just like when you're in that mindset you're your own harshest critics like i should know that word i know that word why didn't i say it um and in many ways like if anyone else were to look at it like that's impressive you can like speak and think in like several languages but it's that fear that paranoia of losing what little you have right and clinging on to it and it's also a degree a high degree um of romanticization um and danger of romanticizing romanticizing what it's like being back home because i haven't been there for so long like my perception probably is very inaccurate and i and i'm cognizant of that but that doesn't make it like the desire any less potent <laughs> to be there and to be part of not only of the diaspora but of people back home particularly when the geopolitical situation is so dire and continues to be um so delicate and fragile um that you know sometimes it's very there's a huge sense of hopelessness and helplessness being part of the diaspora and it can really help connect uh it can really help you connect to the homeland when, when you're trying to keep up with whatever is going on and and but it's difficult because there's for myself i know there's like a high degree of romanticization romanticization i've developed in my brain and that i need to undo but that won't happen till i go back <laughs> so yeah no no absolutely because like i try to take a step back and not think along like the lines of um you know i'm going to go there and i'm going to save all these people and rescue all these people from you know the occupation you know by the us and nato and you know, other imperialists um and it's going to be me and you know these other enlightened um 
Western educated intelligentsia that's going to go there and you know be the superhero Avengers or Justice League or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, to to think like that, I think maybe to an extent is natural growing up over here and uh, having the you know the life experiences uh, that you're bound to get um, as a result of that but to separate that I think is a key component and as you were saying before you know decolonizing the mind from all this colonialism that's taken place as well as um, the indoctrination and the brainwashing that takes place that you know, the West is the best and, you know, we have all the answers and the bourgeois way is, is the only way and it's the righteous way. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I think taking a trip over and seeing what the actual material conditions are and how the people live and, um, you know, what power they have that you could be a part of, um, I think, uh, is a really helpful tool uh, to have and um, it will also help to develop uh, I guess one's understanding of um, how to go about solving problems because you can't solve problems just by imagining that you're going to solve problems you have to go and observe the problems first identify them uh, and then solve them um, so yeah I think definitely um, a trip there is needed um so in terms of um like revolutionary um uh, i guess ideologues and personas have any of those figures resonated with you in particular in terms of the kind of uh, life that they've had and maybe some parallels that you've been able to draw yeah, I mean, just elaborate on what you were saying in terms of decolonizing and, and de deconstructing um, these perceptions. I think all of it, even, try, even trying to get a good understanding of what's happening and like material reality and, and current reality, it all starts with having an anti-imperialist understanding of, of the history of where you come from. And that in and of itself is such a huge not even step, I would say an obstacle. And I, and I call it an obstacle because there is so much bourgeois propaganda and uh, bourgeois liberal propaganda around your own histories and your own stories. And when you grow up away from, from the homeland, even when you are there, but to, to a large degree, when you're part of the diaspora, that's the prominent narrative. So even trying to like unlearn that and, and, and you, you refer to, um, I forget what you were saying, but it reminded me of this point around like the narrative here is not only did the West save us, but we should be thankful that we were even given an opportunity to be here and be given the opportunity to thrive and, and live <laughs> and exist. And that, you know, if it weren't for the West, particularly US and NATO, then that that reality for us to be here wouldn't even be possible. So um, in terms of figures, I've always just looked First and foremost, for myself, the objective has been to learn at least the modern history, because the history of our homeland goes back thousands of years. But like to get a proper understanding of where I am and why I'm here today, um, it starts at the crux of that, not only 30, 40 years ago, but 
um, modern Afghan history, like the British period. So like a big figure for myself has always been uh, Malala of Maiwand during the, I, I believe the second Anglo-British war, where she rallied the troops near around Kandahar. Um, you know, even though we lost that particular war as a whole, but that particular, that battle has been legendary. And my mom's name is Malala. And to like, just even make that connection is, is incredible. It, it, it gives you such a good understanding of the spirit of our people um, and the resiliency of our people. So of course them, uh, Anaita Ratibzad, of course, um, so many people, but for myself, more than like leading figures, it's always been ordinary people and their attitudes towards life itself um, and survival and growth. Uh, and I really enjoyed that aspect of decentralized um, inspiration for myself anyway. Uh, I, for, for myself, first and foremost, it's always been my parents. Like I look up to them the most out of anybody, um, even though they might not, describe themselves as like revolutionaries in any sense. For me, they are completely through and through just by virtue of what they've been through. Uh, particularly my dad is a Marxist youth and, and his beliefs and his political beliefs in opposition to sometimes or oftentimes to like the rest of his family or surrounding family members and um, their struggles as not only refugees once, but intern uh, internally displaced refugees and then refugees again in Pakistan, and then refugees once more, <laughs> just like trying to start over so many times in an effort to just exist. Um, it's pretty incredible. And so those stories are always very personal to me of, of people around me. And it's a story so similar to like millions of others of Afghan, Afghans and other, other, uh, other peoples fighting for sovereignty and liberation, and particularly in an anti-imperialist context. Absolutely. That's a brilliant answer. Um, and kind of what you said kind of reminded me of uh, a quote from Abby Martin, uh, you know, the way she describes the Palestinian struggle uh, for liberation. And she says, you know, their biggest tool of resistance right now is existence. Like the fact that they exist uh, is, uh, you know, a revolutionary act in of itself. Um, so, yeah, I think the existence of our people, um, you know, I guess the bourgeois narrative is, you know, like Afghanistan has been at war for X number of decades, when in reality, like, you know, since the British discovered um, Afghanistan, and the geopolitical location, etc., and how um, the world developed post um post-feudalism uh, really uh, made Afghanistan prime target for you know, imperialist uh, adventurisms and interventions and uh, yeah I think uh, the existence of our people throughout that and um, you know the continued uh, resilience uh, to um to live and to you know battle for dignity on a daily basis um is uh is a great lesson for us and we can take a lot of heart from that and um you know know that as you were talking about malolai people like that their um, blood their collect collective 
spirit, that energy, you know, flows through us and they will continue to flow you know, through many more generations further down the line. Um, and, you know, nothing lasts forever. You know, A, a does not equal to A, everything. Martin, is, is it a constant change? Uh, and so, you know, things will change. And unfortunately for us, you know, we have a very uh, small time frame to be alive in this world um, and we want everything done super fast especially in late stage capitalism where you know you want fast cars fast food you know everything has to be quick 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 and unfortunately re reality doesn't work in the same way so things will take a bit of time um, but um, there's reason to have hope and be hopeful and uh, draw inspiration from stories like Malalai's and um, stories uh, as you described of our families and you know other liberation struggles that are happening all across the world um, and um, I think for me um, you know those uh, uh, learning about those kind of things have helped to shape my personal uh, identity a lot more you know towards um, I was going to say the end of my life, but towards the most recent part of my life. <laughs> uh, I hope to live on for a little yeah, bit more time. <laughs> you need to chill. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, like I think Marxism and Leninism as an ideology is incredibly liberating once you understand how the world works and have that materialist understanding of the world and um, develop a class analysis um, and um, gain, uh, I guess, more um, belief and confidence from the fact that, you know, you belong to a global class of people, the proletariat or you know, the toiling class, the class that makes everything and the class that is the majority, that is the 99%. Um, and, you know, that even though our struggles are ongoing, um, our victory uh, is around the corner. And there's, you know, the famous saying from um, the Russian revolutionaries that October shall come. Uh, and uh, I think for every, every struggle for emancipation, liberation, dignity, uh, and sovereignty, uh, you know, the time draws nearer rather than, you know, being further away. Yeah, and that's precisely the appeal of, like, Marxist theory in particular and Lenin's writings as well. It, it helps you rationalize and, 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 and really discover the, the reasons and the crux of the reasons why things happen and that they're not in isolation or they're not just things that just randomly took place. It's not just like very contemporary geopolitical happenings. It's, it's like the, the practice of, of the practicing of uh, dialectical materialism and scientific revolutionary socialism. It gives you a really clear understanding of why things happen. And it's literally like empirical and material observation. So it helps you make sense of not only what's happening like with us, but the parallels to of um, 
of imperialist campaigns elsewhere and why imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. It's not just plunder for the sake of plunder. <laughs> it's, it's really looking at the different historical epochs and you know how things have evolved and why things uh, have manifested themselves the way they do, where colonialism was no longer as much of an effective tool um, as, as opposed to imperialism and, and why you know our specific homelands and different homelands uh, have been targeted and for what reason it's not just like racism right I mean that's very like surface way level of thinking about it and not that's not to say that racism is not a factor of course it is but um, it goes deeper into that and that and that empirical observation of material material reality and class analysis is at the crux of that and I think for me it just took me so long it's something I innately kind of understood just being like part of the global south diaspora but to, to read theory really grounded my understanding um, of, of you know, what it is that I've always sort of understood and understood to be our realities and our stories, but now there's an actual accumulation and coalescing of, of things from like 100 years ago, 150 years ago that is, has like some things to the T. <laughs> and it's always such like a, like a mind boggling moment to read those like pieces of literature and be like, holy shit, it still applies. Um, so accurately and this is why things happen um, and that in and of itself is just like you know without without theory praxis is fantastic but it's not grounded in anything and without praxis of course theory is just it's it's an indulgent form of of being <laughs> so when for myself it was like practice first and then theory but it's just been uh building on your point like I think that's the appeal of it. It's an innately a liberationary, a liberation-oriented ideology. And um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, that, that's right. I think, I don't know exactly how the quote goes, but I think something like um, praxis without theory is blind, something like that towards the end. Um, yeah, and that's exactly it, I think. <laughs> It's, it's difficult because when you live in in a world as you said you know that's in the epoch of capitalism and that is driven you know by the bourgeoisie and their ideologies still reign supreme um, you're kind of stuck in this um, ID pole um, world that is really difficult to um, you know break out of uh, because your identity is primarily shaped by the superstructure of society from a Marxist uh, perspective. You know things like, you know, your race, your religion, your gender, you know, your nationality, ethnicity. These things do play a huge role, and they're always uh, amped up by the bourgeoisie and used to divide the working class, the ninety-nine percent, into smaller and smaller pieces that they can. Uh, easily conquer and say see like the reason that something bad is happening to you this i don't know 33 percent is because of this other 33 percent and making us fight against each other for uh, you know nonsensical reasons um, so yeah once you develop that marxist perspective that no you know there is a deeper layer to all of this a, a deeper basis that economic basis that helps that actually shapes the superstructure that you know that's where our common interests lie um 
and you know we're part of a class a global class and uh, you know we are the propertyless class and we need to take um, take you know the things that we've built back um, and uh, you know when I say propertyless of course I mean private property in a Marxist sense you know things like factories land uh, mines not your house or your car or your toothbrush all that is your personal property um, but you know like you look at roads crumbling infrastructure not there you know, schools universities hospitals in the disastrous states because uh, as you were saying before you know imperialism is the high stage uh, of capitalism and imperialism has destroyed the global south country by country just absolutely gone through it you know it's like a, uh, like a hammer hammering everything and keeping everything underdeveloped and keeping the people overexploited um, and that's gone on for decades uh, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union that acted as a pillar of resistance uh, and you know now uh, imperialism has changed it itself and uh, started attacking its hosts in the form of neoliberalism you know which began in the mid 80s and um, started taking away you know the welfare states especially and, you know you have mass privatizations anti-worker anti-union uh, legislations and regulations and uh, capitalism is um, destroying everything including the planet um, and you know our identities as well are just all over the place uh, there's so many problems and you know the biggest thing that we see especially on social media is you know rad lips uh, <laughs> i know you have a lot to say about that so i'm gonna unleash you <laughs> unleash stick me on the rad lips but yeah as building on your point it's just like the tactics of neoliberalism is often um appeasement in the form of identity politics which is the most ravaging ravaging thing um and often the minions of those appeasements are radlets <laughs> so it's not like a war between a clear clear like conflict um between bourgeois uh, um and proletariat anymore it's like no that's not there's just so many splinters um and so many reactionary and revisionist elements to to the whole class struggle now where it's uh, it's, it's, it's exactly as you've mentioned in terms of like dividing and conquering, but it's exhausting. Um, it's exhausting because the, the contradictions of capitalism are so apparent, but at the same time, you will have people saying that or, and par parroting that back to you, but at the same time, very much advancing uh, liberal bourgeois agendas, um, either in the form of like comprador bourgeois or as national bourgeois, where you know you mask something as an as a as a revolutionary or a, like a national liberation struggle, but still function in the framework of capitalism and exploitation. So, it's difficult to have an understanding of these things without reading <laughs> theory, and and it's not to because you know, there's a lot to be said around people. Um, having their perspectives around theory in terms of being inaccessible, which I don't agree with at all. It's not inaccessible in any sense. You can find the, the manifestation of theory in history. 
um, and, and living history, not only just history of past, but um, with that theory, it's hard to ground these principles because there are so many layers, particularly insidious neoliberal, as you mentioned, neoliberal layers now, it's difficult to unravel. And it's difficult when it's folks who dub themselves as progressives and wouldn't even call themselves liberals, but they are, those are the raglibs who, who would say they're leftists, which is really fucking vague. What do you mean by that anyway? It means you haven't read theory. <laughs> um, but it, it's difficult, it really is. And that's when you have the emergence of um, those who may not associate themselves with imperialists, but are very much complicit in imperialist campaigns by taking sides of liberal bourgeois agendas, um, either very much intentionally or unintentionally, or or uh, the emergence of Western leftists who are just so um, dedicated to ideological purity that they'd rather see global South states live in absolute abject poverty um, than, than try to support any type of uh, material progress or the alleviation of material suffering. And it's awful. It's very disappointing, to say the least. Absolutely. Exactly. And that, that's, um, I guess, uh, just to your point, that that's kind of what they've um, practiced through, like, the inception of, you know, today's, you know, global empire, the United States, um, you know, the systemic um, genocide of the native folks and you know, the indigenous folks to Turtle Island, and as well, um, the systemic racism of uh, you know, or towards the black people, um, both in America and across Western Europe, um, and you see like these contradictions come in back to life almost uh, in late stage capitalism. You know, we had uh, the BLM movement um, last year, and you know we all witnessed the um, brutal murder of a man on you know filmed captured and yet there's still a trial <laughs> like why do you need a trial like th yeah there's your legal process and all this but if your legal process is such that this guy could potentially this murderer could potentially get away with murder um is a disaster and it should be proof to many people that bourgeois democracy as lenin said uh, is the democracy for a particular class for the bourgeoisie, you know, liberal democracy, but for which class? I think the quote was, uh, and uh, and you're right. Like people won't come to that realization without reading theory. Um, and um, I guess that the the common question always is, oh, theory, theory. Like, what should we read first? Uh, like this or that? Or, you know, principles of communism dead easy. Like <laughs> takes no more than an hour, um, and it's questions and answers, and gets all the basics uh, done. And I think it will help to um, for you to better understand yourself and uh, gain more perspective on your own identity once you read those things. Because as you were saying about your own personal experience, a lot of people I'm sure have an innate um, or a gut feeling about the way things are and some things that they've grown up uh, perceiving 
in a kind of way that will be validated once they read um, you know, uh, works by Marx, Engels, Lenin, uh, Stalin, Mao, you know, people that you know, we're told that were you know these evil guys that you should never even lift a leaf of any of their books um, because it's all tainted in blood. <laughs> yeah, just killing of bajillions and bajillions yeah. of people. Um, absolutely, and and other the other folks who have built on those foundational writings and have applied it to their own revolutionary uh, settings, Huey Newton, Fred Hampton, um, Samora Michelle, Thomas Sankara, uh, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, like the list is endless of black and brown revolutionaries who've not only uh, taken that foundational, those foundational texts and theories and applied it, but have also included their own personal, um, like personal to where they are. Uh, respective uh, liberation struggles and strategies and how, you know, those writings fit whatever struggle that they're leading. Um, so to just reduce it that, you know, those works have only been produced by white people is inaccurate. And, and to say that they're not useful is equally inaccurate. Um, because again, it's just, it's just a weaponization of identity politics where you refuse to even read about class struggles or the, the, the classification of different classes because you've been told they've been written by evil white people. <laughs> and by basis of that, you're just re completely dismissing uh, foundational texts and theories. And um, that's not the way to do it. And, and that's one of the ways that, you know, uh, identity politics has been usurped because you'll have people who, who call themselves progressives and may be involved in organizing, direct actions, whatever, you, whatever it may be, who spout this nonsense and bullshit and, and be immersed in anti-communist propaganda and literally do the work of Quinto Pro uh, in present day where the FBI and CSIS don't have to do shit. You're just doing the work for them. So um, it's, a, it's a big struggle. It's a large struggle. And it's something that you have to undertake every single day, whether it's in relation to uh, like struggles here on Turtle Island in relation to the liberation of indigenous peoples uh, or, or, or um, helping and aiding the liberation of black folks or, you know, countering blatant lies about China, for example, that's like a hot button topic right now, but one of an, an example of, of the same kind of um, vitriol that's spewed by rad libs in particular, who will come in your comment section without having any understanding whatsoever of the context and just literally verbatim just parrot and 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 spew State Department talking points. Exactly, and, and then perceive it as nuance. Like these these issues are nuanced, and you should have nuance. <laughs> I'm objective. I see both sides of the story. I'm not a tanky like you. <laughs> two two things can be true at the same time. In fact, more than two things can be true at the same time. <laughs> Oh, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. For sure. Um, but I guess like kind of bringing it all back to identity, um, how do you, or how would you um, compare your identity uh, or your mo most recent identity as a Marxist, Leninist, um, revolutionary to uh, the identity that you you could potentially maybe see yourself developing without uh, that kind of an ideology. Yeah, that's a it's a good question. I was thinking of like comparative scenarios in my head as you were making the question. 
But um, like a blatant example, a direct one was like growing up here in the West in particular, where in like the crux of bourgeois narratives and propaganda was like the coverage of the Arab Spring or the so-called Arab Spring. It was definitely when I was like a teenager. Um, and at the time, I remember like I really admired my history professor, an absolute radlib looking back now, <laughs> before I like really delved into theory he was like we were talking about what was happening in Egypt and he was saying like how Hosni Mubarak has been deposed and how it's just a huge opportunity for Egyptians um co-opting and usurping the resilience and the the liberation sentiments of Egyptians and making it into this big thing of you know now is the opportunity for the West to support this uh, democratic movement and 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 uh, and at the time I remember being like wow this is this is an incredible like moment in history where where the West is really helping uh, facilitate democracy not knowing any better um, but you know now looking back it was, it, it's again that gut feeling of like mm, there's more to this <laughs> but not really knowing how to articulate it or even rationalize it to yourself in your own brain um, but having theory and, and a better understanding of history in general, uh, particularly my, like the history of our homelands, um, it helps apply and, and really help you analyze what's happening elsewhere. And, and, and that whole, you know, that whole period was, was um, used or justified as an excuse to, to really uh, expand on NATO operations, in particular secure imperialist interests on those homelands in terms of capital and resources. And we see, what's what's the result of of the so-called facilitation of democracy in libya in syria uh, and i mean those those who dare to resist and those who tried to resist but couldn't and capitulated unfortunately due to under imperial pressure in egypt and and and, and elsewhere in yemen in particular um it's it's a vast difference in how you used to think about things or how I was told and taught things versus how i can think for myself, essentially, in a, in a much more critical manner. And that's a hard skill to teach. That's something you have to be very disciplined to really nurture and cultivate yourself. Um, and it's a long process. And I think, honestly, it's a lifetime process, particularly when you've clung to identity so closely because that one factor in your life that helps make helps you make sense of things um, it can be hard to to understand and realize that, you know, oftentimes it's an empty feeling of uh, or empty words or empty framework and rhetoric of self-essentialization without any basis um, or any any class basis. And that's a hard realization. So I always empathize with folks <laughs> who are struggling with it. And I think it's a lifetime process. But um, that's like a stark reality in, in the span of like, what, 12 years and I think it didn't really start for me um, until like, even after I was done my like formal post-secondary education um, in liberal institutions. And these are things that I've like embarked on myself and have had to do that. And because it's so removed from like formal academia for the most part, at least. Yes, very similar experience for me too. Um, I guess I've, I could see myself, um, I guess, further developing the nihilistic um, ideology or perception of the world that I had. Like, um, I, I always used to think, like, what's the point of doing this? What's the point of doing that? You know, like, for example, in Afghanistan, like, 
yeah, Afghanistan is just always going to be at war, uh, no matter what. And you know, people are Afghan people are naturally aggressive, and they don't they don't take shit like they're always going to end up fighting. There's too many tribes, and there's there's no solution to any of this. Like all of this is fairly endless. Whereas you know, like developing that Marxist-Leninist understanding and seeing how you know things um, do change and uh, that change is based on economic development and uh, development of productive forces because Afghanistan in my opinion is still largely a semi-feudal country and we've not even entered capitalism so the way you would have seen uh, Western Europe, for example, a few hundred years ago, be- prior to uh, becoming industrialized, the kind of values that they would have had, uh, regardless of the imposition of, um, you know, uh, imperialism and the divisions across the different stratas of the superstructure uh, imposed again by imperialism. Um, they would have they they would have faced you know, similar problems. Um, so, uh, for me personally, I think I'm grateful that um, having that understanding um, has given me um, more hope and optimism in in place of um, the nihilism and pessimism that I had, um, and. That, that would be, I guess, um, coming towards the end of our episode. Like my final question to you, like what kind of message would you have for young people, especially members of um, you know, the oppressed groups um, living uh, in the Imperial Corps, I guess, um, what kind of message would you have for those people that are struggling you know, with uh, formulating an identity or having that crisis of identity? And just putting That's a hard question, just putting me on the spot like that. <laughs> but yeah, I I don't know. I always think, I always approach this question as like what I would want to know when I was like in my formative years, supremely formative years. And it's, um, it's to try to cultivate like a critical analysis and critical way of thinking, which is often difficult to do when you're bombarded by li- like liberal bourgeois media and narratives and things that have so much exposure and, and supposed like uh, evidence behind it. Um, I don't know. And I, I, that, that'll be my primary thing is like try to come, try to approach things from a critical analysis and um, and 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 try to engage with pages and 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 resources because there's so much more now um, available now than when I was like 12, 13, 14. Um, in terms, particularly in relation to like digital resources, there's so many. There's a plethora of them now that that can really help you get started with regards to understanding specific phenomena um, in relation to anti-imperialist thinking in particular. Um, you know, and which also not only it's not as if they don't delve into identity, they do. It's just it's just disassociating itself, uh, disassociating it from um, like bourgeois cooptation and usurpation. Um, 
So that's what I would say. Um, that's what I wish like I could help people do, and I try to. And I think that's the intent and objective of help um, that we as a team try to do. Uh, but yeah, that would just be. That's what I would say anyway. I guess just to add to your point that um, there's a lot of like, um, I guess hopelessness as well, especially as we've said in late stage capitalism, everything looks doom and gloom, especially I feel so bad for, um, you know, Gen Z, I guess, you know, the bracket, the new bracket of uh, bourgeois, you know, separation, um, you know, young people in general who are, you know, growing up and seeing the entire world potentially being destroyed. Um, you know, kids just, you know, enrolled onto university and already hit by a pandemic. Um, and they've taken out thousands uh, of pounds worth of loans, um, you know, across the number of years that they will be studying. Um, and, um, you know, once they uh, graduate I'm sure it's in the back of their minds like is there even going to be a job for me is that job going to pay me enough to be able to you know pay my rent um, and potentially get a get a house or they say buy a house but you're not really buying the house you know you're taking it out on, an, on another mortgage or another loan and then getting another loan for your car you know it's like they call it financing uh, and is, this your, is this your message of hope? <laughs> Going about it in an interesting way. <laughs> you need to break somebody down to build them back up. <laughs> that's the logic I'm using. <laughs> but that's unfortunately that's the reality, and I think we have to like accept that reality and acknowledge it to be able to, um, you, you know, change it, identify the problem, and and then you know look for solutions and you know those things are there and they exist in society and um i guess my point is that like we see that as well um and we've gone through it and we are kind of on the other side of it but at the same time living through it just as um these young people or people that are younger than us will be i still consider myself young i guess in, in certain ways <laughs> uh and uh yeah not to give up uh hope as um, as difficult as the circumstances are to um to maintain that optimism things do change and things will change um, I mean, if you look at us as a species you know where we've come we've um, inherited a planet that um didn't you know, didn't have any buildings, didn't have any planes, didn't have any uh, phones or computers or satellites or space travel. And we've been able to manipulate um, the, the planet uh, to our will and change and go in, you know, to high modes of production uh, as we will continue to do. Um, and, uh, yeah just have um, the hope and look to um, 
I guess just a piece of advice from me, look to join um, things that um, involve uh, collective uh, collectivization in terms of action, uh, whether that's a union, uh, whether that's uh, even something like uh, a sports team, a sports club, or um, I don't know, like a film club, just so you have uh, that human connection. Um, I know right now we're living through a pandemic, so most of the things will take place uh, online, but at, at the very least, knowing that there, there are other people uh, that you will talk to and um, you know, bounce ideas off of, um, uh, I think that's that's an incredibly helpful tool. Um, and so yeah, um, I guess my uh, pessimism over there's still some residual pessimism there, as as you see. Um, any kind of last thoughts on identity and anything that you wanted to add? No, you set us up nicely. It's just that contradictions inherent to capitalism are coming to a head. And very soon, so just get ready, be ready, be vigilant. Awesome. I think those are some um, very powerful words to leave this uh, episode on. Um, it's been really nice. Uh, it's been our first episode, so uh, we hope to you know, make some more and get better at it as we progress. So thank you for listening. and tune in to our next episode and cut <laughs> I that was pretty good i'd say that was pretty good